Hello, my name is Deborah Sidaway and thank you for joining me again as we continue this story of divorce, a series exploring the stories of the bigamists, the bastards, the feminists and the fornicators who helped shape the law of divorce in England as it exists today. Throughout this series, we have discovered that the law around getting divorced in England evolved for the benefit of men. But not all men. It wasn't for all. Only for those that were influential or rich enough to afford the process to get themselves a divorce. But what if a woman wanted a divorce? In today's episode, I am going to tell the story of the first successful divorce petition by a wife. It is a story of betrayal, heartache, hypocrisy, and in the end, the wife only got her divorce because Parliament in the circumstances had little other option but to grant the wife the divorce that would free her. This is her story. The year was 1798. George III was on the throne, still slipping in and out of the madness that blighted his reign, and William Pitt the Younger was Prime Minister. The French Revolutionary Wars continued to rage on in a year that would see the French naval fleet destroyed by the Royal Navy led by Admiral Horatio Nelson in the Battle of the Nile. It was in this year of turmoil that a woman received a letter that would horrify her, causing her world to shatter. Her father had written to her, trying to break the news as gently as he could. But there was little he could do to soften such a devastating blow. He was writing to inform her that her husband had been unfaithful, having been successfully sued for criminal conversation. But what was worse was that the woman with whom he had been conducting his affair was none other than her own sister. The atrocious scandal that followed would lead to the first parliamentary divorce being given to a woman. Her name was Mrs. Jane Addison. Jane Campbell, as she was known prior to her marriage, was one of 12 children born to Sir James Campbell of Killian and his wife Jane. Sir James had sat as MP for Stirling from 1780 to 1789, when the seat became occupied by her uncle, Major General Sir Archibald Campbell. It is significant here that Jane had such strong family parliamentary connections. In part, Jane would only succeed because her family had both the knowledge of the process and the requisite financial means to try and extricate Jane from her marriage. Jane's story began much the same as any other woman of her class and her time. She married a merchant, Edward Addison, in 1788, going on to have a son and a daughter, and living a respectable life in her homes in the Strand and in Blackheath. Jane's older sister Jessie had married their cousin in 1785 when she was 18 years old. Jessie's husband, Dr James Campbell, was a 29-year-old surgeon and the married couple moved to Calcutta in India where they went on to have four children. It seemed that both Campbell sisters had made sensible and prudent matches and were content in their respective marriages. At least Jane was content. Jessie, on the other hand, was clearly not as happy in her marriage as appearances suggested. She returned from India in 1791, bringing with her the four children of the marriage, moving in with her sister Jane. 
At some point shortly thereafter, and despite the generosity of Jane as she welcomed her sister and her children into her home, Jessie proceeded to enjoy what was called in court a vile and incestuous intercourse, engaging in a torrid affair with her sister's husband, Edward. This was not just a betrayal of the bonds of her sisterhood with Jane. It was also incest, because the law, as we may recall from previous episodes, considered Jessie and Edward to be sister and brother. Jane's reaction on receiving this letter from her father was one of shocked disbelief. She was shattered. All that was important to her had been torn apart. She simply could not accept that the husband she loved had betrayed her in so heinous a manner by sleeping with her own sister under her own roof. Her father informed her that Dr. Campbell had been awarded by a jury in the court of King's Bench the sum of £5,000 in damages, worth approximately £220,000 in real terms today, and this was awarded against her husband for his adultery with Jessie. It was a punitive sum to award against a merchant, expressing the jury's disgust with the adultery it had been called to make a judgment on. It was this that persuaded poor Jane that the allegations that her husband had been sleeping with her sister must be true. Although, as she clutched the letter to her heart, all she could be heard to repeat was an unbelief that her husband could be guilty of so atrocious a crime. A devastated Jane left her husband and returned to Scotland to live with her father, while Edward Addison, her feckless husband, unable to meet the huge sum of damages awarded against him, fled the country like the coward he was, unable to face either his creditor or his wife. It was believed he had taken himself to Hamburg. Jane, meanwhile, commenced proceedings in the consistory court for a bed and board divorce from her adulterous husband. This was granted. But Jane wanted a full divorce from her husband, one that would sever the matrimonial tie and free her to marry again. It was here that she had a problem, for no woman had ever achieved a parliamentary divorce in all the years since the first parliamentary divorce had been given to Lord Ruse. Indeed, only one woman before her had even made a petition for a divorce, and that was in the early 1700s. It had been categorically rejected. Nevertheless, under the guidance of her father, Jane petitioned Parliament for a divorce. It caused considerable consternation. On 14 March 1801, the Lord Chancellor of the House of Lords, the Right Honourable Alexander Wedderburn, first Baron of Loughborough, took the floor to call to the attention of the House that it was a woman who had alleged adultery against her husband and brought a petition for a divorce so as to be enabled to marry again. A woman! His lordship urged the house to give serious consideration to the subject and to consider the consequences that would follow from permitting women to sue their husbands. The Lord Chancellor seemed to be concerned about the potential difficulties that this could cause with the distribution of property between the married couple. These were not idle concerns, for the laws of England did not recognise the existence of a married woman, because on marriage, a woman ceased to exist in the eyes of the law, which no longer recognised her as an individual in her own right. 
It was as though, with her marriage, a cloak of invisibility had been thrown on top of her and the eyes of the world could no longer see her. And this was more than a mere metaphor. It was called a wife's coverture. Pursuant to this common law doctrine of coverture, the husband incorporated the legal personality and property of his wife. From the moment a single woman became a wife, everything that she had became his, and she was unable to own property, enter into a legal contract, or bring legal proceedings on her own behalf. All this could only be done through her husband. There were some limited exceptions to this, as the courts of equity recognized a woman's property that had been protected for her separate use by her parents. But this was a strategy that benefited only the wealthy. Middle-class women and the daughters of the poor had no such protection. As early as 1696, one anonymous female author, calling herself a lady, who is now believed to be Judith Drake, who was married to a physician and political writer, despaired of the status of women in an essay in defense of the female sex, saying, Women, like our Negroes in our Western plantations, are born slaves and live prisoners all their lives. The notion of coverture, which effectively made the husband and wife one person in the eyes of the common law, was described in 1765 by one of the most eminent and remarkable of our English jurists, Sir William Blackstone, as follows. The very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage, or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband under whose wing, protection and cover, she performs everything. It would be fair to say that marriage stripped a woman of full human personality. Her very existence was wiped away by her coverture. As such, it was a general principle that a woman could not bring legal proceedings against her own husband. The effect of coverture rendered such proceedings a legal impossibility because it would amount to a husband suing himself. So when the Lord Chancellor was addressing the House on the first reading of Jane Addison's application for a divorce, his Lordship was adamant that he considered that an application by a woman for a divorce was not of a kind of application that ought to be encouraged by the House. His Lordship suggested that there may be cases of an aggravated nature, such as great cruelty against a wife which would warrant a divorce being granted, but his Lordship would not pledge himself to support Jane's application. When Jane's petition was heard before the House, Mr. Adam, counsel appearing on behalf of Jane, admitted that her petition was a novelty in Parliament but that he hoped to make out a case that would satisfy their lordships that on the principles of humanity, justice and policy, the application of this unfortunate lady ought to be complied with. Mr. Adam then went through all the arguments as to why Jane's petition for a divorce should be granted by the House. He pointed out that it was not the policy of the land to compel people to live in a state of celibacy, and that it was impossible for Jane given the way that her husband had treated her, to return to him. He pointed out that without an act of parliament, not only would Jane never be able to marry again, but that the husband who had wronged her would retain the power over any property that Jane might come into. The house also had to contend with an added complication. For Dr. Campbell, 
having also obtained his bed and board divorce from Jane's sister Jessie and successfully suing Jane's husband for criminal conversation, had also petitioned the house for a divorce. Given the circumstances, it would have been inconceivable that Parliament would not grant Dr. Campbell a divorce from Jessie. At the same time, Jane's application for her divorce was made on the basis of the same act of proven adultery that would give Dr. Campbell his divorce. How could the House justify giving one of the innocent parties to the monstrous act of incestuous adultery a divorce while denying it to the other, even if that other was just a woman? Both Jane and Dr. Campbell's petitions for a divorce were debated. Although they were not heard in tandem, it was clear that the House was aware that the substance of the allegations of adultery in both petitions stemmed from the same circumstances. As was usual, both petitions went before a committee of the House of Lords, where evidence was given as to the state of the marriages and to support the allegations of adultery. Jessie's own maid, Amelia Laffer, gave evidence against her mistress in support of both Jane and Dr. Campbell's petitions, commenting that she had found Jessie in a locked room with Edward Addison, with him wearing nothing but slippers and nightgown, and recounted how the servants had gossiped about a ghost haunting the hallways, only to realise that it was Mr. Addison sneaking into the room of his sister-in-law in the dead of the night. A waiter at a local inn also gave his testimony for Jane, recounting how he had seen Mr. Addison and Jessie in a position as though they were man and wife. In Dr. Campbell's petition for a divorce, the voyeuristic waiter elaborated on what he had seen, giving more of the salacious details in the following exchange. Question. What did you do? Answer. I cut a hole in the door. Question. What did you observe? Answer. That she was on the carpet on her back and the gentleman above her. Question. Had you any doubt about the situation they were in? Answer. I certainly thought what I heard was right. Following the damning evidence that had been brought before them, there was no doubt in the minds of the house that adultery of the worst kind had taken place and that both Dr. Campbell and Jane were the innocent victims in their respective marriages. The only question for the Lords was how they would deal with the two petitions when the only thing that separated them was that one was brought by a man and the other by a woman. Indeed, as the respective bills made their progress through Parliament, it soon became clear that the House of Lords had no difficulty with the bill relating to Dr. James Campbell, but dithered over James, even though their complaints emanated from the same set of proven facts. In particular, while there was a new Lord Chancellor with the Right Honourable John Scott, first Baron of Eldon having been appointed, it seemed that his view mirrored that of his predecessor, and he too needed persuasion that it was appropriate to grant a divorce to a woman petitioner. In addition, one of the most vocal voices of dissent was that of the Duke of Clarence, and his voice was one that commanded the entire attention of the house, for he was the third son of King George III and Queen Charlotte. On 20 May 1801, as the debates opened on the first reading of Jane's divorce bill, 
His Royal Highness was the first to rise to express his objections to Jane's petition, saying, He was free to confess that Mrs. Addison had made out so very strong a case, that if any criminal conduct of a husband towards his wife could be allowed to amount to a justification of her obtaining a divorce from him at the hands of the legislature, he should be ready to admit that Mrs. Addison's was that very case. But when he considered the novelty of the legislature granting a divorce to a wife on complaint of adultery on the part of her husband, the infinite mischiefs it might lead to be encouraging the foulest collusions to obtain an effectual discharge from their marriage vows and connections, and the determined effect the practice would have on the morals of society, however much he might lament the hardness of the particular case, still, acting as a legislator, he should hold it to be his indispensable duty to resist the present application for a divorce. What His Highness was really saying was that if they opened up the possibility of divorce being granted to a woman, it would be easier for unhappily married couples to work in tandem to get a divorce. After all, a woman was hardly likely to agree to being labelled an adulteress simply to be freed from the bonds of matrimony. To do so would lead to being tarnished with the stain of adultery forever and being an outcast from respectable society. Of course, there was no such stigma for a male adulterer. A husband desperate to be freed from his marriage could persuade a wife to divorce him on the grounds of his adultery without being condemned herself for the sin of adultery. The evidence would be easy enough to manufacture, as we will see later in this series. Lord Thurlow, however, supported Jane's bill on the grounds that it was not just adultery, but adultery aggravated by incest. And after beginning his speech with some compliments to the illustrious personage who had just sat down, also known as the Duke of Clarence, he asked the House, Were Mrs Addison ever so much inclined to forgive her husband, a reconciliation could not legally take place, because future connection between them as man and wife would be tainted with incest. Could their lordships, after what they had heard upon oath at the bar, refuse the request? Did they see nothing immoral in compelling Mrs. Addison, after what had passed, to remain connected and under the power of her husband? Lord Thurlow was both eloquent and persuasive. Despite the fact that there was no precedent for a woman to be granted a divorce, the Duke of Clarence indicated that his opinion was much altered in consequence of what he had heard, and even the Lord Chancellor was won over although he expressed considerable concern that the divorce would remove the children from the custody and protection of their mother, as fathers had an absolute right to the custody of their children, regardless of their conduct. Meanwhile, Dr. Campbell's Bill of Divorce also made its way through the parliamentary process. In early May of 1801, Lord Auckland indicated that he would be moving for a clause to be inserted into Dr. Campbell's Bill of Divorce, preventing Jessie from marrying the adulterer. However, it would appear that the proposed clause went even further and would prevent Jessie from remarrying at all. It was at this point that Jessie, on hearing of this, made her presence felt, and her counsel made an appearance on her behalf in early June of that same year. Reading a petition on her behalf, he indicated that Jessie, 
being in a great measure secluded from the world, objected to the insertion of such a clause in the bill on the grounds that it would preclude the possibility of her ever making atonement for any indiscretion she might have committed, and hoped that the Honourable House would take her case into consideration and not suffer the clause to pass. It was hardly an expression of remorse from the scarlet woman of the moment. And as such, the house were having none of this and soon made their feelings more than plain. While they agreed that Jessie's plea that the clause preventing her from remarriage should be sent to the committee upon the bill for consideration, they were far from supportive. One member of the House of Commons, Mr Evelyn Pierpoint, even commenting that he would certainly oppose the clause being expunged. His opinion was that the purpose of Dr Campbell's divorce bill was for the purpose of relieving an innocent and injured husband, and he thought it very wrong, particularly under the peculiar circumstances attending Mrs Campbell's adultery, that the guilty person should receive any advantage from the bill. He added that he understood the lady was very handsome, and therefore he was very well persuaded she would not be at a loss for a companion. It seemed that poor Jessie was being censured not only for her adultery with her brother-in-law, but for her beauty as well. It looked like Jane too was to get her divorce, but following the concerns raised by the Duke of Clarence, the House of Lords stipulated that in the future, divorces would only be granted to a woman in the case of incestuous adultery. Adultery on its own was therefore not sufficient for a wife to petition for a divorce from a cheating husband. It was almost an endorsement of the words uttered by the Duke of Norfolk nearly a century earlier when he achieved his divorce, namely, that a man's folly was of a different nature than a woman's. This sexual double standard, established in the Duke of Norfolk's divorce and further entrenched as part of the parliamentary process for a divorce following Jane Addison's successful petition, would continue to stand for well over a century. And in a further measure to express their collective disgust at the behaviour of Edward Addison, an amendment was introduced into Jane's divorce bill, granting her custody of her children in order to secure, as far as circumstances will admit, the virtuous education of the children. The children were also made wards of the High Court of Chancery. Jane's Campbell divorce followed a few days later. Despite Jessie's pleas to allow her the freedom to marry again, in the act as it was passed, Jessie was forbidden to marry another while Dr Campbell still lived. She was 34 years old when this act was passed. The husband she portrayed with her infidelity lived on for 16 more years, dying in Bengal in 1817, where he still practised as a physician. While his death finally freed Jesse to marry again, Jesse would have been 50 years old at the time of his death, well past the bloom of her youth, and with her reputation forever tarnished by the taint of incest, it seems unlikely that she would have secured another husband. Jane Addison, however, had a happier ending. She did go on to marry again, this time an architect from a wealthy family, a Mr Roger Pocklington from Nottingham in 1802, just one year after obtaining her divorce. She went on to have further children before dying at the age of 80, being laid to rest in a grave next to the body of her husband in the All Saints Church in Winthorpe. As to Jessie and Edward Addison, the adulterous lovers whose affair destroyed two marriages, 
I could find no record of what became of them following the scandal of adultery, incest and divorce that had engulfed them both. In a short footnote to the whole case, it is worth noting that the Duke of Clarence, whose concerns over granting Jane her divorce set what would amount to an almost insurmountable bar to a woman obtaining a divorce, went on to become king in 1830, following the death of his older brother, George IV. As a young prince with no expectations of inheriting the throne, he had conducted a long-term affair with an Irish actress named Dorothea Bland, by whom he had fathered ten illegitimate children, who each carried the surname of Fitzclarence. Following his marriage, however, there was never again a hint of scandal tied to his name, with no evidence to suggest that he was ever unfaithful to his bride, Princess Adelaide. Jane Addison was one of only four wives who would get a parliamentary divorce before the law would be overhauled in 1857 with the new Divorce Act. Please join me again next time as we turn to the story of another of those wronged women. Thank you for listening. My name is Deborah Sidway and remember that you can follow the podcast series on Twitter at, at Story of Divorce.